0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Bruce Cooklick, the author of Fascism Comes to America, A Century of Obsession in Politics and Culture. The term fascist has been thrown around in American politics and culture for much of the 20th and 21st century. It is a popular epithet that is used to brand all kinds of political opponents from left to right. But what does the term mean? How is it used? How did it show up in American history and culture with the rise of fascist regimes in Europe before World War II? Why has its use persisted even as those regimes were defeated? And why has, has fascist come to carry such negative connotations? In Fascism Comes to America, Bruce Kuklik explores the history of the use and meaning of fascism in American politics and culture for the past hundred years. Bruce Kuklik is the Nichols Professor of American History Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. He is most recently the author of Death in the Congo, Murdering Patrice Lumumba, written with Emmanuel Girard, and The Fighting Sullivans. Bruce Kuklick, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Tom. I'm happy, more than happy to be here. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Before we get into the substance of your book, I want to ask, what brought you to this project? That is to say, why a study of fascism? Why today?
2: Well, in one sense, that's really easy to answer. All you have to do is uh, look at any one of the cable news channels any night, and you will find that someone or another, someone or other in American politics has been being called a fascist, it's actually hard to escape uh, the prevalence of the use of this term uh, in the United States today. Uh, And I've always had, in addition to that, I've always had an interest in American diplomacy in uh, in the 1930s, the decade uh, which led to World War II and which is renowned, uh, not least because of the rise of uh, Mussolini and Hitler in Europe. So uh, it sort of just emerged that I sort of thinking about how or why the the present use of fascism is related to what went on in the 1930s, uh, and the result was uh, an increasing. Uh, interest in the problems of this book. And I guess the other thing is, which I hope we'll get into, uh, the entertainment industry stoked, uh, has stoked uh, for almost a hundred years, Americans fascination with fascism. Um, And uh, I'm a great movie buff. And there are all these terrific movies, which in, in one way or another, uh, speak about the issues of fascism for an American audience and I I I would be it'd be honest for me to say that my interest in uh, entertainment and especially the Hol- uh the Hollywood movie uh, provoked me into writing this book
1: okay uh, we will talk about some of those things um, but before we get into that I'd like to you to read uh, from your book. Um, if we could start with really just the the opening paragraph to chapter one, right there on page one. Um, if you could read that for our listeners, uh,
2: actually, I love this paragraph. I've written, I wrote it uh, up uh, maybe and revised it five hundred times. Google fascism comes <laughs> well, to America, or search the topic on Amazon. Thousands of entries pop up. Reformers are fascists. Conservatives are fascists. Corporate business leaders are secret fascists. We find crypto, egalitarian, fastidious, modern, neo, and respectable fascists. Fascism can creep or be friendly or feel at home on Park Avenue. It can be sweet or mild and, and uh, or even watery. During the 1930s, U.S. Follow, followers of the Russian communist Joseph Stalin called the communist adherents of Leon Trotsky social fascists. During the same decade, some citizens dreaded that fascists might declare themselves as anti-fascists. More certainly, the government later trashed chastise other citizens for their premature anti-fascism. During the 1970s, the Black Panthers of Oakland, California, identified liberals as fascist pigs. But another Oakland-based organization, the Symbionese Liberation Army, announced the assassination of a black leader for his fascist plans for public school safety. Fascist Fascism has functional equivalents. Fascists often reemerge, while some politicians count as fascistoid or fascist-like. Roosevelt's New Deal had fascist affinities, and so did the Reagan Revolution. The Jim Crow South evidenced fascism, but so did it, its opponents in the civil rights movements. Barack Obama was a fascist, but so was John McCain. Donald Trump was undoubtedly a fascism, a fascist, and on and on and on it goes. I mean, all you have to do is scratch the surface of this stuff, Tom, and you see that Americans are are obsessed with this notion.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a, an all-purpose political smear, isn't it?
2: Yes. Well, that's that's the argument that ultimately I make, although. I should say uh, to interested readers, I don't necessarily push my own thesis. What I was trying to do in the book was to lay out all of the ways in which the the phrase and its cognates were used and then ask the reader, what do you think? My own ideas, Bruce's ideas are these, but uh, think about it yourself because it's an ongoing problem and issue, I think, in the United States.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how, how this, how we, how we got here. Uh, so the first chapter describes the origins of fascism, including its prehistory in the United States and beyond the actual coinage of the term in interwar Italy, where did fascists come from? and, And how did Americans respond to what was essentially a European idea?
2: Well, it's quite interesting. Uh, where Mussolini takes power uh, in Italy f- in the early 1920s, um, and at first, Americans see his uh, rise to leadership basically as a positive phenomenon, and it's, it's the people who were usually identified as American liberals, as progressives, who do this. Uh, because after the uh, after World War One and the retreat of from uh, Woodrow Wilson's internationalism, uh, conservative Republicans come to power in the United States, uh, and the liberals, when Mussolini takes over in Italy, think, "Gee, Mussolini is a lot like Teddy Roosevelt. That is, he's a nationalist." He believes uh, somehow in uh, a communal, more corporate form of government than Republican individualism in the United States allows. And so for these old time uh, Teddy Roosevelt progressives and also for Woodrow Wilson progressives, fascism as Mussolini exhibits it in the early 1920s is a positive development. And so throughout the 1920s uh, fascism makes its entrance into the United States as a, uh, as a positive development in Europe, which in effect is copying uh, what, uh, what somebody like Teddy Roosevelt did in the United States. At the same time, uh, there are there's a little bit of withholding on the part of uh, Americans because they see that a kind of Mussolini's uh, nastier sort of, uh, the nastier aspects of Mussolini's rule were appropriate for a backward country like Italy. And they certainly aren't appropriate to the United States. So while fascism is positive, has a positive connotation. It's there's always a little bit of withholding on the part of American intellectuals uh, who see it really as uh, as something that uh, is more uh, more reasonable for a primitive country like Italy. Uh, what they want is for is for people like Mussolini to follow the more positive aspects of Teddy Roosevelt's set of ideas then and this is when the big the big crunch comes uh, during the depression uh, when the, the world economy collapses in 29 30 uh, and uh, the problems of, of employment are uh, are the most serious issues for Americans for the next 10 years. And then, and most people don't uh, remember this or know this, but uh, Adolf Hitler's regime came to power uh, at the same time as Franklin Roosevelt's. And Hitler's regime is, is so mean spirited and nasty, uh, as we all know, especially its racial policies, that uh, as I put it in the book, Hitler taints Mussolini. They're both regarded as uh, as similar kinds of regimes, but all of the uh, the good qualities that people thought uh, that uh, Mussolini's fascism have are submerged when when people see the Germans exhibiting. Uh, what they came to see as the true outcome of, uh, of, of Mussolini. So from the mid-1930s on, the, the connotation, connotation of fascism in the United States changes and becomes entirely negative. And then it becomes uh, a very useful word, as you put it, to smear... Uh, anybody that you don't like, uh, and the best example of this, I think, is is what happens to Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. It immediately, by Roosevelt, takes power uh, in early 1933, uh, and within a year, all of his political opponents are 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 calling Roosevelt a fascist. Uh, Roosevelt doesn't take this sitting down, uh, and immediately. Uh, The Democratic administration and and his followers call their opponents fascists. So right from the start, in American English, in American politics, fascism becomes uh, a label which you can use to tar anyone whom you don't like.
1: Uh, So one of, and and we've already mentioned this before, but one of the great pleasures of your book is the way you explore how the term fascism and and kind of the ideas associated with it migrate across different cultural realms. So fascism is at once a, a political idea, a political ideology, and it's also one that manifests itself in popular culture. So tell us a little about what happens when the term moves between these different cultural areas?
2: Uh, well, this is a topic which I really love to talk about. Uh, and I think it all starts uh, with Groucho Marx, not uh, Karl Marx, whom you might think of as a, a great critic of, who uh, would have been a great, Critic of uh, Hitler and Mussolini, but with with Groucho, no. and in 1930, When I hear
1: when I hear Marx, I always go to Groucho first.
2: Yes. Uh, well, in 1933, uh, Groucho made uh, the the last of, of these terrific uh, fun movies that he made in the uh, in the beginning of the sound era of uh, motion pictures. A film called Duck Soup. And Duck Soup is about a sort of uh, lunatic uh, leader of a small country uh, called Fredonia, which has a historical background identical to the United States. And its leader uh, is a guy named Rufus T. Firefly, played, of course, by Groucho Marx. And uh, he decides to go to war against an opposing... uh, country because uh, its leading diplomat uh has uh tried to muscle in on groucho's girlfriend so the country goes to war uh over this uh, over the issue of uh who has uh who has claimed to uh this this woman whom groucho likes uh the film was banned in italy It was released uh, on the 10th anniversary of Mussolini's rule, that is in 32. That is, it's just at the time when fascism is being tainted by the rise of of Hitler. Uh, And what one finds is that to the extent that ordinary Americans had an understanding of fascism, it derived not so much from the discussion, certainly not from the discussion of academics, uh, and, but, and not even so much from the discussion of politicians, although that's certainly important. Rather, ordinary Americans got their, uh, their understanding of, of these things from the world of entertainment. And it's just amazing to see the response, uh, of, uh, of the, the folks in Hollywood to, uh, to, uh, national political issues. Uh, they make, there are a lot of serious movies, serious anti-fascist films that are made, uh, but. The ones that strike me as most interesting and the ones that penetrate most deeply into popular culture is this genre which uh, Groucho Marx uh, begins, which I call the farce of fascism. And it is the most fascinating aspect of the use of fascism and its cognates uh, that I found, because here you have... The most horrible Hitler's regime is the most horrible regime in the history of the planet. Yet, somehow and for some reason, uh, the entertainment industry and particularly Hollywood finds it finds a way to make a joke out of it. Um, and so you have uh, Groucho Marx's duck soup followed, for example, by, uh, by uh, Charlie Chaplin's, the great dictator uh, followed by Dr. Strangelove in the, uh, in the night, in the early 1960s uh, followed by, uh, my one of my favorite films of all time the zero Must Tell film uh the producers uh here you have uh, this gets us maybe a little ahead of where you want to be but i love this story the producers uh is a movie about a uh, a Broadway play that uh that the two producers of it have uh, brought to Broadway designed to uh, in a way that's designed to fail. And there's a kind of sort of complicated story of why they want to produce uh, a show on Broadway that's that that's going to uh, to to flame out. But the show they do is called Springtime for Hitler. Now, you have to think, and this is 1967, in the middle of the Vietnam War, the high period of protests where uh, the, uh, the president of the United States at the time, Lyndon Johnson, and the people around him are calling all of the demonstrators against the war in Vietnam uh, student fascists. And the kids who are protesting are calling the, the political leaders fascists uh a very very uh precarious time in the history of the republic where you have uh these uh labels traded back and forth with an angry denunciation you know uh marches on the pentagon uh all sorts of disruption to to normal activities very serious time and yet here, the producers becomes a smash, a smash uh, movie hit, and what it does is uh, show the way in which uh, the the two Broadway producers put on a Broadway play called Springtime for Hitler, in which the lead song goes springtime for Hitler in Germany, Uh, winter for Poland and France. Uh, Deutschland needs a great leader, and uh, if you watch the movie, you can see a huge banner of Adolf Hitler come down in the middle of your uh, screen and uh, uh, cannons shooting off uh, into the audience uh, these uh, pieces, these artillery shells. I mean, it's amazing and what what the farce of fascism means and how it uh, reflects what's going on in american culture is a conundrum that i don't completely understand but the phenomenon requires some description and some uh looking over if you're at all interested in uh, american cultural history
1: yeah it, it's uh, the the film the film as you said is absolutely fascinating um and even the the remake that appeared a couple of decades later So uh, I want to talk, though, a minute, as as myself, a scholar of communication and and rhetoric, um, your third chapter is especially interesting, and so I want you to um, talk a little bit about what is meant by the phrase, the map is not the territory, and, and what does that axiom have to do with the study of fascism?
2: Wait, let me see. You're asking me a hard question here uh <laughs> oh oh you uh, you' you were asking about uh, uh, all of the... Korzybski uh, and uh, yeah uh
1: the general semantics movement
2: yeah this is a, a very interesting issue actually uh in the 1930s uh a whole movement grew up which was uh connected to uh a, a, a Well, the rise of what was called logical positivism in in Germany and then in England. And this is a philosophical movement which was centered around the uses of language. And the argument was that we had two very distinct uses of language. One was uh, fact-stating scientific language. The other was... uh, a different sort of, uh, use of language, which was, uh, in their terms, usually called emotivism, the use of language not to describe something or state a fact or to make a scientific theory, but rather to, uh, to, to arouse people's emotions, uh, to get them to do something, uh, so that you had evaluative uh, language as opposed to descriptive. Uh, I am still very partial to this theory, but one of the things that happened in the when when these views got translated into uh, the United States, they became the possession not just of scholars and philosophy departments in the United States, but to a whole crew of people called semanticists. some of whom were big supporters of uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the Democratic administration. And what they did was quite interesting because uh, what they said, they took, all of their political opponents that is the republican conservatives who were opposed to uh, to franklin roosevelt and said hey you guys are using misusing language when you say roosevelt is a fascist uh, what you're doing is emoting. What you're trying to do is persuade people of certain things that aren't true. Uh, your language fails. Your language uh, uh, is uh, unfortunate and uh inaccurate you're you're making a fund they basically reduced the republican politics to making a what they thought was an elementary philosophical error to confuse fact-stating language with emotional language uh it's a very i it's interesting that you you find that uh a fascinating movement i did also but i also think that it uh it was a, uh, a way of labeling and castigating your opponents which probably didn't have much bite uh, with the general population. Although there is if you've uh, since you
0: you've,
2: you've read this carefully time, Tom, there's uh, one very interesting uh, book uh, in which the the author uh does a sampling of uh, of the of the uh, of people in the United States actually he did it up in Connecticut where I, I he lived uh, and he found uh, that asking people what fascist meant that he found like 20 different uh, varieties of definition none of which uh, some of which didn't overlap some of which were completely opposed to one another uh, but which he uh, thought corroborated his ideas that the Republicans were were misusing the term. Then, of course, all of these guys said they could properly use the term. Uh, and if you were a, a good Democrat uh, semanticist, you found that Uh, All the Republicans were really fascist, uh, that you could find a cognitive core to to what fascism meant. And with that, you were able to describe uh, scientifically your opponents of fascism. So here I find uh, another example of people, uh, I don't want to say being confused, but certainly unable to prevent themselves from Uh, the allure of using this term to castigate your opponents. It became the way, by then it was the way that you had of, 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 of making the worst of anybody you opposed, Tom.
1: So, so let's talk a little bit about that, that, that worst of anyone you oppose. So um, I'm talking to you uh, not far from, Uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, and the Shrine of the Little Flower Parish. Oh, really? Uh, And in the second, yeah. So in the fifth chapter, you start to get up into the U.S. entry into World War II. And my students are frequently surprised to find that this was... As fraught a decision um, as as it you know in retrospect shouldn't have been right. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the America Firsters, and of course I'm especially interested to learn about uh, Father Charles Coughlin.
2: Yeah. Gee, this is interesting, and I you you might not uh, agree with me about this, but I am much more sympathetic to. The uh, what was called at the time the American First Movement than most people are today. That is to say, there were genuine political issues surrounding uh, the decision by the United States under Franklin Roosevelt to go to war against the Germans, which he uh, and the Japanese, which he finally did in 1941. In the lead-up. To the decision of the Roosevelt administration, uh, there was a lot of concern about the uh, the justifiability of the United States entering the war in entering European problems again. And this is a a fraught set of issues. We had entered uh, World War I in 1917, 1918 to straighten out uh, European troubles. Uh, 20 years later, Europe, uh, less than 20 years later, Europe was back in the soup with the British and French on the one hand, against the, against the Italians and the Germans with the, the Russian communists, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the far East, uh, complicating matters by switching from one side to the other in this, during this period, the Roosevelt administration is absolutely determined, I think to finally, to get the United States, uh, on the side of the British and French. Uh, Roosevelt, and I entirely agree with you uh, about this, uh, ultimately thought that Hitler and Hitlerism was just uh, uh, an existential threat to the United States and and beyond that to general decency in the world. He was opposed, however, during this period by... The, uh, the group generally, uh, it it was a wider movement than this, but the most famous part of the movement were those people called American firsters and, uh, and they, they had arguments on their side because then, uh, it wasn't, it, it wasn't clear at that time, for example, uh, just how horrible, uh, Hitler's policies toward, uh, towards Jews, towards gypsies, towards gays would be. Uh, and the, the American firsters thought the Germans might be horrible, but it would be equally horrible for the United States to try to get into this war again, because we had seen in World War I, that we hadn't succeeded in changing European politics. Why would it be any better in World War II? So there was a very, very heated uh, a con- set of controversies surrounding American uh, overseas commitments during this period. One of the more interesting uh, controversialists uh, during this period was your friend in Royal Oak, Michigan, Father Charles Coglin, uh, a Roman Catholic who was known as the radio priest, uh, who did actually support it Roosevelt initially, but then became a very, very vicious critic of him. And someone who became, I think, Sort of unfairly identified with a pro-Hitler stance, but what is interesting, uh, I think, about uh, about Coglin and about uh, Roman Catholics at this time, before and after uh, Coglin Coglin's time, is this: Roman Catholics until very recently have been a uh, not a feared, what do I want to say? They haven't been considered proper Americans or true Americans. The United States is a deep, still, a deeply Protestant culture. Uh, Joe Biden is only the second American president who was a Roman Catholic. Uh, His predecessor, Jack Kennedy, had a heck of a time in the 1960s convincing people that if he were uh, elected if people were convinced that if he were elected the pope would uh would come up the potomac river in a in a grand yacht and take over the united states this is back in the 1930s when uh the shady nature of roman catholics uh, was really on a lot of people's minds. And here's here's what's most interesting to me about uh, Roman Catholics and the notion of fascism. What Catholics thought about the United States was that it was far too much an individualistic culture, that you needed to care for the poor and the sick uh you, you needed a more corporate uh, sort of government, uh, a government which would look to the communal health of, of, of the general public and not be concerned so much with individuals. That is, to some extent, the Catholics were more social Democrats than the Protestants. And a lot of them, and, uh, Coghlan is the best example uh, were sympathetic not so much to Hitler but to to Mussolini and to Mussolini's corporate sense of a uh, of an Italian community that had to uh, that that had to operate with the concerns of the poorest uh, and less well off in mind so what uh, happens with Coughlin, is that he's, you find him speaking out in favor of Mussolini and in favor of some sort of communal sense of well-being. And he did this on his famous radio show, which reached millions of Catholics and some non-Catholics. The result is, by the late 30s, what happens? The uh, powers that be, the, 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 certainly the Roosevelt people, don't like him. And what happens? He's called a fascist. Uh, and he's linked at that. And since fascism at this time in Europe is linked to Hitler, he so soon identified uh, as a Hitlerite. So I'm more sympathetic uh, to Coglin and to American first people than, than most scholars are. But at the same time, the overriding thing is not it, at least from my point of view, is not that, but that again, the role of the concept of fascism comes in to stigmatize these people. Uh, again, it shows itself as this powerful way of condemning an opponent. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
1: Yeah, and, and that situation didn't really change. That is, that idea that, you know, Roosevelt could be a fascist and Charles Coughlin could be a fascist, even though they're on opposite sides of the, of the spectrum, until until America's entry into war. And then the, the World War, World War II kind of stabilizes the meaning of fascism for a while. Um, I mean, I guess this seems obvious, but why don't we talk a little bit about how, how the how fascism sort of sort of held still uh for the war years
2: yeah well uh what what is interesting to me in this uh phase of the linguistic career of fascism is that uh with there well there are two phases to it first uh fascism because the united states when it gets into the war allies itself at least uh opportunistically with stalin's soviet union that the fascists uh, become defined as the real evil that both the united states and the soviet union are fighting so you have at once uh a uh As you put it, a stabilization of this negative aura that uh, fascism has, and then as soon as the United States wins the World War II, the Cold War emerges as this further uh, let's in geopolitics fight for uh, primacy uh, in. In in world statesmanship between the Soviet Union and the United States, and so that fascism, in a way, declines in uh, declines in importance because there is now another enemy, the communists. Uh, so, uh, But one of the things, the first thing that happens, uh, and you can predict this almost, is that while the real, the live fascists, uh, the, the ones who defined World War II, Hitler and Mussolini, are gone, for the Americans, you have another really terrible enemy, the Soviet Union. And so what do you do? uh how would you how would you describe an enemy to make that enemy the worst the worst kind of uh group in the world you pull out fascism and soon uh the uh, the label fascism is used to designate the, the people in the Soviet Union. They're really a, a different kind of brand of fascism. So while the real fascists go out of power, uh, there, there's a new group, which was at one point defined in opposition to fascism, now becomes fascist. Fascist. Uh, and and so we see another linguistic turn tom in this use of the word where it where it becomes the opposite of what it was that is it was once used to to describe the great enemies of the soviet union and now the soviet union itself gets defined as that kind of entity uh i i just find and this is you know another uh Episode in this uh, in this evolution of the the use of the term, in which it becomes the most negative signifier Americans are capable of dreaming up. Tom,
1: although we try some other things, right? So, uh, in in the second section of the book, uh, specifically in chapter seven, you talk about people trying to make some some distinctions. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the the difference between fascism and what came to be regarded as totalitarianism.
2: Yeah, well, this uh, this is uh, actually a uh, what is for me the least uh, how do I want to say the least significant of the debates about fascism, because it. Uh, it's a debate which is largely within the walls of the academic world, and uh, one of the arguments that I make in the book, which is actually peripheral to what we've been talking about, which, but which I think is nonetheless interesting, is that ever since uh, since the time of uh, of Mussolini in the in the early nineteen twenties, academics have been talking about these things. Arguing what is what is really the central cognitive content of fascism, what the what what the definition is, how you analyze it, how you verify it, uh, and I would say these debates among academics reach their high point uh, in the uh, in the aftermath of World War Two, uh, and actually into the the post. Uh, you know, the immediate post war period, that is in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, you have all sorts of academics trying to define uh, various brands of fascism, various uh, sub, sub ca- categories of it. And the most important one, I, the most important set of Definitions involves around this term totalitarianism, which uh, which basically tries to argue or does argue that you have uh, one set of uh, of governmental regimes which can be called well I guess if, which be called democratic. Their alternative. Uh, is the totalitarian regime. And the totalitarian regime is one in which, as you can guess from the, the word itself, there is a, an attempt for the state to be the, uh, the total, the sum of all loyalties and commitments, leaving no room for the individual, leaving no room for uh, personal freedoms. Uh, everything is absorbed by the state. And when you do this, then, then you, you can make some sense out of the fact that even though the United States was allied to Russia in World War II, both uh, Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin all four fall under this uh, the the rubric of totalitarianism, as opposed to democracy. Uh, and during the Cold War, uh, this is a very useful tool for American politicians, because what they can do in sorting out uh, who their enemies are in this this huge geo geopolitical struggle, what what the Americans can do is is figure out where to put certain regimes. That is, if they really don't like them, if they find they're a threat, they become part of the totalitarian group. And the chief one among this is obviously the Soviet Union, but it also comes to encompass the, the Chinese communists, comes to encompass uh, the North Koreans, for example, Uh and then you 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 then try to discriminate between people whom you think are the real baddies, the totalitarians, uh, as opposed to those who might be only autocratic or demagogic, but whom you can still work with. So the uh, while the 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 notion of fascism, as I put it declines in significance during this period. Uh, It has a surrogate, that is totalitarianism, which is very useful for Americans in fighting the Cold War. Tom.
1: And a lot of this discussion about these, about all of these various distinctions are influenced by, uh, initially by European refugees, uh, thinkers who influenced the American discussion of fascism. And there are a variety of different strands from different national origins discussed in your eighth chapter, Um, but is there a general pattern that emerges from all of these different influences in the U S
2: yes. And this, I, uh, actually you're talking about chapter eight, which is Europeans bring fascism to the United States, which is actually one of the first chapters I wrote because I found it so interesting. Um, uh, as I pointed out earlier, uh, these, the, the guys who were called logical positivists in Europe, uh, were a very important, uh, philosophical group intellectual group who actually then a lot of whom migrated to the United States during the rise of Hitler and they were uh, just one of many uh, groups of European intellectuals who came here during the 1930s and who really enriched uh, American intellectual life in an amazing set of ways Uh, you know, people—a lot of people—claim to be patriots are very proud of the American way and uh, American ideas and uh, things like that. They would be well advised to look at what happened in the nineteen thirties when the na- the notion of what was American was uh, vastly enhanced by all these Europeans. Uh, having said that, in their defense. What I think is what was interesting to me in writing this book is that when all these people came to the United States, they immediately – presume that they were dealing in part with another fascist country that is they had left mainly germany although not exclusively they came to the united states which opened its arms to them and gave them employment and prestige and all they could do over and over and over again uh was to write uh, and think and believe that the United States was really a, a peculiar kind of fascist country. That is, they used their own ideas of what fascism was like, mainly in Germany, uh, and saw the same phenomenon in the United States. And here, and uh, here again. Uh, you see whether they were Germans or uh, whether they were refugees from Europe or native-born Americans, fascism again emerges for, for, for these European intellectuals as, uh, you know, the worst sort of uh, political system one can imagine. And here these Europeans found it in America. And uh, my best example of that is... Uh, is actually Hannah Arendt, uh, whom I don't like very much, to tell you the truth. And the reason I don't is that uh, in one of her important books, she wrote this basically history of political thought in the United States, in which she said, the founding fathers were the, the greatest exemplars of uh, good uh, of, uh, of thinkers who talked about good, good governance uh, in, a, in a country uh, they, and they are, as you know, Franklin, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, uh, are all uh, the founders from the, uh, the late uh, 18th, early 19th century. But then, according to Hannah Arendt, in her history of American politics, things went completely downhill. And she said there they basically, she says, there's no, there was no real thinking in the United States for over a, uh, uh, let's say over 150 years from, let's say, 1800 to 1950. Uh, and when fa- people finally do start thinking in a, in a strategic way about politics again, according to Hannah Arendt, they're all fascists. Uh, and uh, this was a uh, so that there's a Jeremiah of about fascism for Hannah Arendt uh, so that when she comes to the United States in the 40s, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, she's facing a fascist America, which she lambates every uh, every chance she gets when she is being wined and dined in uh in New York by all sorts of intellectuals and has the American world at her feet. All she can do is condemn the United States for having its peculiar form of fascism, Tom.
1: Yeah. Um, so there there are a lot of different strands to, to pick up in this book. And, and again, I hope that you know one of the reasons we do this is to encourage listeners to to go out and and find the book and read it for themselves and and make their own decisions about um about the the issues that you're raising uh, as we come to an end, I want to kind of merge the the final two chapters together and and ask a little bit uh, about the relationship between democracy and fascism and and whether we can have uh fascism without fascism
2: Well. Uh,
1: I know that's a lot, but <laughs> no.
2: yeah. How can I do that in thirty seconds? Uh, what the last? No, no. The-
1: you got more time than that. But-
2: okay. The last chapter, what I do uh, is take democracy uh, as a an equally polarized political word, which has a positive uh, connotation, as fascism has a negative one. And what I what I try to do is to examine what fascism originally meant uh, in America or in the early republic. It was not then a positive term. It was not then a uh, a, a concept that uh, the founding fathers found fruitful. In fact, it was positive. Uh, it was negative in implication. That is, the, the founding fathers did not like democracy. It favored uh, short-term solutions that were based in passion instead of reason. It uh, it led to demagoguery and uh, giving the, the voice to... Uh, to people who should not have a voice. And if you look at their debates, what they called what they were doing was creating a republic. That is a a government which was popular, as they called it, but which was much, much more concerned uh, to limit uh, the... uh, the The voice of the people. You had to give. You had to give the people a voice, but you had to constrain it in various ways, or else it would go in the direction of democracy, which was, which they considered to be, uh, may, perhaps not an evil, but certainly something to be feared. And th- the argument I try to make in the last chapter is that if we, if we compare the uh the way in which in which democracy's career the career of that concept has become gone from negative to positive just as the career of fascism has gone from positive to deeply negative and uh i close by by, by using this uh phrase fascism without fascism as a kind of ironical way of talking about guess who donald trump uh if you if you i think trump is is a democrat uh, a small D Democrat, in the sense of of what the founders made of it—that is, this is a guy who uh, relies on the, the voices of all sorts of people whom the founders thought should have no voice. Uh, but that to call him a fascist is to make a serious kind of error, because if if fascism, you know, here think of think of what. Hitler's fascism meant it meant uh something that was deeply anti-semitic here you have a guy whose son-in-law is a uh whose beloved son-in-law by the way uh is a Jew and he has and his wife is converted to Judaism and he had and so Trump has a jewish jewish daughter and jewish jewish grandchildren how can you how can you call someone like that a fascist in addition if you you think of hitler's germany uh here was a a culture which had the enormous uh, enormous popular support you know 90 percent of the people approved of hitler uh with trump it's maximum of 45 percent the whole you know the culture is not uh the sort of one that uh that hitler would have recognized at all and i go on and on like that in that vein to suggest the ironies involved in our use of political language and i asked and this is the, uh, i'm glad you brought this up i mean if you have people who will read the book because of the podcast and I hope you do I don't want to force my views on them what I want them to do is think about these these political issues in a critical way and try to get away from cliches and thinking about them and rather kind of uh, you know have a a, you know, just a, a kind of empirical sense of uh, of trying to figure out uh, what these political terms actually mean and, and what they lead us to do, Tom.
1: Well, again, that is what we're here for. Hopefully uh, someone goes out and is inspired to uh, to take a look at the book. Uh, Bruce Kuklick, uh thank you once again. I, I, I usually close by asking, although I noted at the beginning that you're a professor emeritus. Uh, so what can we expect next?
2: Oh gee, I'm glad you asked that question. What are you working on? I can sell some books. Uh, I wrote, uh, <laughs> I, I wrote a little, t- a a single author, short, brief, but actually very interpretive textbook called "A Political History of the USA: One Nation Under God." It's in a second edition, uh, where I am. As we speak, I am uh, working on a third edition, which will really bring the uh, the history up to date of uh, over the last twenty years, and uh, it is it is scheduled to come out uh, in January of 2025, right after the 2024 election, and uh, I tell people to. Uh, to make a note or you know uh, put it on their list because uh, I really enjoy working on this. It's highly interpretive, but it's uh, very seriously researched. I've got a lot of people uh, helping me out with ideas and suggestions. Um, but that's what's next on my agenda.
1: Terrific. Uh, Bruce Cooklick, thank you once again for your time and, and for your work on this topic.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Tom. Really appreciate it.
1: So once again, my guest today has been Bruce Kuklick, the author of Fascism Comes to America, a century of obsession in politics and culture, out from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to The New Books Network.